Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Simbox Present. Let's talk boxing with your hosts, Luke and Ewan. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Simbox Presents, Let's Talk Boxing. I'm your host, Luke Carney, and as always, I will be joined by my co-host, Mr. Ewan Breeze. And before we get underway with today's episode, I would just like to let our listeners know that you can check us out across social media, and we're on Twitter, at Simbox, we're on Instagram, at Sim underscore Box, and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is Simbox Boxing, we provide daily updates, breaking news, and debate all things boxing. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Let's Talk Boxing. And Ewan, we finally managed to make it. We've got some British boxing announced, as Frank Warren made his announcement this week, that he's planning shows beginning in July. Uh, after such a, a drought, you know, some, some great news, finally. Exactly, exactly. We were, we were moving slowly towards boxing every week. You know, we had a couple of top-ranked shows and stuff like that. It's... It's great to finally have boxing back on these shows. Most definitely, you know, it's it's, it's been a bit of a, a tough time, and you know the, that light at the tunnel that we've been working towards is is finally here. And you know, each week on the episode, we say you know we wish our listeners well, and you know we're still striving to get back to normality. And this is a quite a big announcement. You know, we was expecting the the fight camps from Eddie Hearn maybe to be uh, confirmed first. You know, there's been a bit of a a chop and change with the dates with, with Eddie Hearn and Matchroom and, and Frank Warren swung in and, and announced his shows first, which, you know, you know whether it be Frank Warren, whether it be uh, Hennessy Sports, whether it be Matchroom, you know, not too fussed as long as, as boxing gets back on and, and on as soon as possible. Exactly. And the competition has proved very healthy in British boxing over the last few years. And I think nothing proves that better than, you know, all Eddie and the big money and everybody getting excited. And then suddenly Frank swoops in and he's the first one to announce a show. It's, I think it shows that British boxing and British boxing promotion is in a healthy place and nobody's hemorrhaging money and everybody's ready to go. Yeah, most definitely. And alongside that this week, there was also the announcement from Al Siesta and Siesta Boxing Promotions uh, that they're working on, I think it's a, a Cold War-themed uh, boxing series of events You know that, that's that's due to, to kick off in July. I've not seen too much back information on that. Uh, you know, Al's somebody that I'm keen to catch up with as well. Um, and, and organise an interview with but yeah he's, he's announced a series of events that will be taking place in July as well so again it just goes to, to show the the route we're going down back to normality and um, you know long may this continue you know there's, there's worries of a second spike of the, the COVID-19 situation which you know God forbid doesn't happen but you know as, as, as far as sports and, and boxing in particular you know there's, there's a lot going on and it's, it's, it's really exciting yeah, exactly. We, you know, hope nothing goes wrong and everybody stays safe and well. But like I say, I think I think it's it's good and it's showing that we are in a healthy position for having sport back because the big worry would always be that the business side of it was crippled from the time away and the lack of revenue and that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, most definitely. So in terms of, you know, getting these fights made and, you know, especially with the Frank Warren uh, fights, you know, the, the, the three fights, uh, three headline fights for each show uh, that, that seems to have been announced. Uh, we have the July 10th date for Brad Foster against James Beach. Um, Brad Foster is, you know, he's, he's, he's a really good uh, British and Commonwealth super bantamweight champion. He's, you know, far and away and building his reputation um, somewhat under the radar, if you like, in terms of the, the general boxing population of fans. But uh, And James Beach, I'll, I'll be completely honest, I don't know too much about. I know he's 12-0, he's undefeated, so that's a cracking little fight. Um, 
And then we got Anthony Kakache with uh, Liam Woodstock. That's a super featherweight, British super featherweight title fight. And then uh, LeBron Richards against Umar Sadiq for the British and Commonwealth super middleweight titles. You know, I, I think in terms of, of trying to come back with, you know, 50-50 fights on paper, you can't ask for much more from Frank Warren there. You know, some good fights. Some great fights, and they're all all that that those you know classic British level fights. And if you put on British title fights, you're bound to have crackers. You know, British title fights are very rarely awful fights, and especially if you match them at the right level. I personally am really really excited for uh, for Richard Sadiq. I think that's a fantastic fight. I think I really rate Lerone Richards very highly, and uh, I think that I think that that one is the one that's just got it's got fireworks written all over it at Super Middleweight. Yeah, most definitely. Am I right in saying Umar Sadiq beat Cody Davis last time out? Uh, I believe so, yeah. yeah. So and Cody crack, Davis, crack. obviously, but a bit of revenge as well because they are both part of the same Sam Jones stable, uh, Lerone Richards and Cody Davis. Yeah, of course. So, uh, and obviously, John, I spoke to John Hedges and he says that they're all really, really close up there and he's he's signed with them as well. And he was saying how, how close Davis and Richards are. So I think it might be have a nice little bit of needle and spike going into that one. Yeah, most definitely. I think that could be, um, it's, it's a great point that you've made, you know, especially with the, the fact that there's, you know, a lack of atmosphere with the no fans there, of course. And to have that little bit of needle built into the fight, you know, it's not manufactured, it's it's not forced on them, it's, it's kind of natural. I think that can add a little bit of spite and, and hopefully, you know, take that fight up a notch even more so considering you know there's a couple of belts on the line and there's that bit of personal needle um it all bodes well for a fantastic fight yeah exactly and, and I th- like i say i think stylistically as well it's a good fight i think they're both both very very talented and, and and will bring their a games you know come july yeah most definitely and you know before each podcast you know we tend to chat to each other about our notes and and, and what we're going to chat about you know and a lot of it is free-flowing and the point I'm alluding to, and I'm not going to beat around the bushes, alongside the good news in boxing that Frank Warren's returning and British boxing's uh, returning, there's also the the darker side of boxing and something that I didn't want to let you know about beforehand because I wanted to get your honest reaction. Uh, the darker side of boxing uh, being the announcement this week of Jarrell Miller's return. Uh, he's, he's scheduled to take place, uh, I think it's July 9th or somewhere around there with a top rank. Uh, Ewan, what's your thoughts on that? I, I genuinely didn't know. I've been at work all morning. I didn't know this. I haven't seen it anywhere. Um, so this is this is me. Uh, I, I'm I'm frankly disgusted because everybody knows that he was trying to cheat. He was trying to hurt somebody by using illegal drugs. Um, you know, for me, that doing that is it's essentially loading your gloves. And you know, uh, like we all shunned Margarito for what he did and put in put in plaster plaster of Paris in his gloves and you know all the alleged cheating there. This is as bad, if not worse. He was giving himself a physical advantage to try and hurt somebody. If you keep giving drugs cheats, chances in boxing, they'll kill someone in the ring and that will be officially sanctioned murder. It's not just boxing anymore if you're taking drugs and you are proven to be taking drugs. It's somebody will die and boxing will be dragged through the mud and it will be the fault of Jarrell Miller and whoever his team is. Uh, It is bad for our sport if he's involved in it. Um, and I, I will, I will personally have nothing to do with the show with Jarrell Miller on it. Yeah, most definitely. You know, I, I was, I was umming and ahhing, and I love to discuss him. Uh, but being it as it is, it's, it's, it's made the headlines. You know, I think it was uh, Tris Dixon. He put together an article for the boxing scene. You know, I don't want to misquote it, and I'm sure that's where I've seen it. But he's, uh, he, he was, he was looking back at a fight of a, a bygone era. It would have been something you might be familiar with. I'll have to share the link with uh, the Simbox followers. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm in total agreement with, with you there. You and it seems to be 
that, that everyone's tentative in terms of taking real action um, or putting any real deterrence in place because if, if one promoter in Eddie Hearn has nothing to do with Jerome Miller, then Lou DiBella, um, top rank, those kind of guys swoop in and, and pick him up and, and they rebrand him, you know, to the point where when Jerome Miller failed the drug test, you know, he, he held his hands up at the beginning and, you know, he admitted to wrongdoing and now it's come full circle and he's almost embracing the bad guy image. You know, he's looking at himself as the villain of the heavyweight division and I think it's absolutely absurd that he can cheat to such an extent that he did and then it's almost accepted as like a, a character trait and that it's almost like a movie, which it's not. You know, this is real life and he could have done Auntie Joshua or whoever he may get in the ring with some serious harm, such was the strength of the steroids that he was taking. He's already a, a big man. He's a, he's a huge unit and, you know, it doesn't take much more to, to, to push him over the edge, you know, in terms of physical capabilities and doing somebody some serious harm. And unfortunately, it does seem that until, you know the court after they've caused someone serious damage, that'll be the only point that it gets so serious across the board. It's absolutely absurd to think. It it makes no sense. It makes no sense at all because, like I say, it, they are playing roulette with people's lives if they sign Jarrell Miller. Because if, so say, top, say he pops again and top rank don't take him and then Ludabella takes him, then Ludabella is responsible if he hurts someone in the ring. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Whoever his promotional outfit are, his managerial outfit they are, by putting a known drugs cheat into a boxing ring, they're gambling with the life of the opponent, all right? And it might pay off, and it might pay off, and it might pay off, but one day it won't pay off. And then suddenly, you will all be responsible for a death in the ring and dragging our sport through the mud. And whoever those people are, when that happens, because at some point it's going to happen, and whoever is involved in that at that point needs to take a long, hard look at themselves because a death or a serious injury is inevitable if we keep putting drug cheats back in, especially in the heavyweight division. Absolutely. There's not much more that I can add to that. And, and moving on, as we tend to do in our, our podcast, we, we take a look back in this week in boxing history and to try and get away from the slum of, of talking about the depths that Jerome Miller sank to. Um, let's go to the peak of heavyweight boxing. The great One of the great fights of the past 30 years in heavyweight boxing, uh, 17 years ago this week, Lennox Lewis boxed for the final time as a professional boxer. Uh, at the time, a somewhat unknown quantity, and I missed Vitaly Klitschko, and, and what a war it was, you. It's a fantastic fight. It's a fantastic fight. But, you know, you know, everyone was writing Klitschko off after he quit against um, against Chris Bird, and he'd, he'd had that bizarre injury, uh, and everyone was writing him off, and Lewis, too, was writing him off. You know, he said he famously said that he'd have, uh, he'd have Vitaly for breakfast and Vladimir for lunch. <laughs> and... Um, it didn't turn out that way and it turned out to be a, a vicious, vicious fight and a, a one that was tough on both men. Yeah, most definitely. You know, they've shown such desire, um, such will to win. You know, the, the pair of them had granite chins. I'll neither of them touch the deck. I'll, I'll never know. You know, such was the, the shots that each man was landing in a horrific cut that was caused over, I think it was the left eye of Vitaly Klitschko. It's, you know, it's, you know, a really grim, grim cut and, uh, as, as as people will well know, uh, that, that that enforced the 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 short ending to the fight. Um, I think it was the end of the sixth round. Uh, but those first six rounds, I think both men kind of gassed after three, and then it was just a war of attrition after that. And there was some heavy, heavy shots and some heavy artillery used in that fight. And uh, it's it's a shame we never got the rematch. I can understand why Lennox walked away after that. You know, he had nothing else to prove. He took on the creme de la creme. Um, 
if you ask me on a different day, I might get slightly bitter and say that he should have took the rematch, given I think Vitali was ahead on the scorecards, maybe, and uh, and and just as a pure boxing spectacle, it would have been fantastic to see Vitali Klitschko Lennox Lewis too, as it was. Uh, Lewis retired, and Vitali went on to win the WBC heavyweight title, um, and he reigned for for quite a while. You know, he had an, uh, a bit of a retirement in the middle, but then he came back and he, he reigned again. Yeah, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a little bit uh, I'm gonna disagree with you in a little bit in that I, I I totally understand why Lennox didn't take the rematch because I thought he won quite convincingly and I know it was stopped on cuts but actually you know uh, Matt Christie this week wrote he said it, Vlad uh, Vitaly Klitschko looked like he'd fallen face first into a bucket of barbed wire and that's, I couldn't think of a more accurate description he, he was absolutely torn to shreds you know it's one of the worst examples of cuts I've ever seen in a fight it's it's really quite horrendous because there's about four fights that could four cuts that could stop the fight you know what I mean it's not just like one big cut it's you know he was absolutely beaten to a pulp and I totally understand why the referee stopped it and then why Lennox wasn't keen for a rematch absolutely you know I don't in any way begrudge the the stopping of the fight it was it was absolutely horrendous you know it was was a horrific cut that was rightly um waved off um you know a lot of people was was Questioning Lennox, you know, I think he appeared in the the Ocean's Eleven movie, the Hollywood blockbuster. Um, funnily enough, I think he was opposite Vladimir Klitschko in that, that film, and a lot of people think he was taking his eye off the ball in terms of you know his bread and butter, the boxing game. Um, such you know, he was, he was a megastar of, of boxing back at that time. You know, he's coming towards the end of an illustrious career, and he was he was you know heralded whether it be in Great Britain, uh, Canada, or of course America. You know, he was. Um, whether people wanted to see him win, lose, or draw, he was a draw. Um, and I do think that, uh, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb. You know, a lot of people have Lennox as one of the best British boxers of all time. I, I think he didn't want any part of Italian the rematch. The risk-reward factor for Lennox just didn't work out, and I don't think he wanted any part of a, a younger, fresher Vitaly Klitschko. Exactly. That's, I, I, I think you're probably right. But at the same time, the best know when, it's, when to call it a day. Um, and to, I won't begrudge anyone for calling it a day. You know, um, Rocky Marciano famously, you know, there was everyone was saying, oh, you need to fight Floyd Patterson. You need to fight Archie Moore again. You know, there was kind of and he was like, no, I'm done. I'm out. That's me. And he was all the better for it in his retirement. Obviously, I know he died, did die tragically young, but it wasn't anything to do with his boxing career. But, yeah, I think that he did have a kind of Marciano, Gene Tunney, Jim Jeffries the first time that kind of. I'm just going to bow out. And although it kind of can sometimes leave a bit of taste as boxing fans, you know, he never went too long. He didn't end up doing what Tyson did and losing to the likes of Kevin McBride or what Ali did and, you know, losing to the likes of Trevor Burbick and Leon Spinks. It's, I don't begrudge Lennox for it, actually. I think even though as boxing fans, we might be like, oh God, it would have been fun to have the rematch. And it absolutely would have been. Uh, I understand the the kind of getting out early as as it is. Absolutely, you know. I think you know. I'm not I'm not going to play both sides of the fence. You know, the boxing fan of me wants to see the second fight, but the 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 Lennox Lewis fan, if you like that that kind of, I can appreciate that he stepped away. You know, we, as you mentioned there with uh, Ali or Tyson or you know the, the guy that I always go back to for staying around too long, uh, Roy Jones Jr. You know, if he'd called it quits much earlier, he would have he would have been lauded much more than what he already is. You know, people tend to look back at his super middleweight days and when he when he went up to heavyweight and won the, the, the heavyweight world title. But then slowly but surely it kind of fell away and, you know, he was a shadow, uh, less than a shadow of his former self. And you know, but in that respect then, you know, you know, well done to Lennox for stepping away, you know, and, and not letting his ego and his pride get in the way of blemishing a, a fantastic career. So yeah, in that respect I will agree with you. 
Exactly, that's it. You don't want to go on too long. And like I said, Roy Jones is the prime example because what would he have done to some of the guys that he faced later on in his career? It's, it is sad looking at Roy in his later years taking punches that he didn't need to take. Yeah, most definitely. So getting into this week's feature, um, as we've explained time and time again, with the lack of boxing at the minute, you know, we, we've substituted uh, any kind of preview or review of boxing shows for a feature. Uh, of each podcast and for anyone that follows other podcasts out there for instance the Total Toe Sky Sports uh, you would have seen recently that they was comparing their top five super middleweights I think there was Johnny Nelson there was Carl Froch um, and I think there was a couple of others and they was all putting forward their top five super middleweights and of course the old debate it's been going on and on and on since about 2009, and of course I'm alluding to the fight that never was arguably the best all-British fight that we can fantasise about, and it's Carl Froch versus Joe Calzaga. Joe Calzaga versus Carl Froch, however you want it. And for today's feature, myself and Ewan are going to debate uh, after much deliberation. You know, we're both fans of each boxer. Uh, myself, I'm going to take the argument for Carl Froch, and Ewan's going to take the argument from a Joe Calzaga perspective. Uh, just before we move on with that, I just want to let everyone know that as I've already said, myself and you and a huge fans of both Carl Froch and Joe Calzaga, but for the sake of argument, I'm Team Froch and Ewan is Team Calzaga. Exactly, yeah. I, don't, I, I do hate arguing against my old mate Froch. Yeah, I love him. I do think he's brilliant, but again, I am I'm firmly behind the arguments that I have because I, I, I do actually, I do stand, when you said I'll take Froch, I was like, good, because I could argue Froch, but I do actually stand by my convictions on Joe. Yeah, most definitely. So just to put a bit of meat to the bones, uh, with the podcast toe to toe, Carl Froch, controversial as ever, was asked for his his top three super middleweights of all time, and he came back with a top five, and he listed Mikhail Kessler at number five, Joe Calzaghe at number four, Carl Froch at number three, Andre Ward number two, Roy Jones number one. Um, if you used to swap around Carl Froch and Joe Calzaghe, that was pretty much across the board accepted that the best super middleweights of all time is Joe Calzaghe at number three, Andre Ward at number two. And Roy Jones Jr., uh, undisputedly number one. Um, and that stoked the fire. You know, the fire's never really gone out, the, the, whether it be across social media, via interviews, uh, any opportunity that we kind of get Carl Froch takes to, to poke fun at Carl Zaghi and try to tempt him out into a fight, even at this stage of both men's respective careers. Exactly, and it's big money, and I think they both know that. But uh, Joe, Joe seems to—he's one of those. He's not—he's not that bothered. He was all about the legacy, and that's why he left it when he did. And I think Frotchy's a bit more. He quite—he quite—he quite fancies a scrap, doesn't he? Yeah, you know, it's—it's it's gone in recent years from trying to tempt him out every time for a boxing match to. Uh, I think his, his phrase of choice at the minute is "Let's have a roll around on the cobbles," which I think is absolutely hilarious. You know, the thought of of Carl Frotch and Carl Zaga um, having a straightener as such. As opposed to <laughs> boxing under the Queensbury rules, you know, I think that's uh, quite the prospect in its own right. Exactly, exactly. He's, that's it. That's Froch. I think he's. I think he likes playing with everyone. To be honest, I don't think he means it. Well, this is it. This is something that I'm going to ask before we get into the breaking down the, the whole argument. Is do you think this is you know since both men have retired, um, and it's so easy to be after time, and uh, when both men have given it up and they're no longer boxing. But do you think it's a case of Froch being bitter with Joe Calzaghe's seemingly extra popularity? Or do you think he's just playing us all along and he just knows that he can mix it up and stir up the bullshit and get a bit of attention on social media and he'll get you know songs going and he'll get tails wagging and, and everyone will be talking about him whether or not they like him or hate him 
they, they, they'll be talking about Carl Froch. What, what, where do you sit on that argument? Is he bitter or is he just having a bit of fun? Oh, I think it's both and I think it's simultaneous. I think it's the same thing he has with Ward, is that he doesn't, he doesn't like that they never fought and he wanted them to fight because that would have been a massive money fight. You know, Carl Froch needed Joe Calzaghi's name a lot more than Joe Calzaghi needed Carl Froch's name. But actually, I think he likes the idea of that he would have beaten him and that because we never know, he can stoke it up and annoy people and get people talking about him. And I think he, is, he does have a narcissistic uh, kind of trait in him that he likes to be talked about, he likes to be the news. And, you know, I think a lot of boxers have that. And I think in retirement, Joe, uh, he's, Joe Calzaghi's faded into kind of, not obscurity, but kind of a kind of self-imposed kind of he's a very private person, whereas Frotchie just loves a headline. And Absolutely. I think the fact that Joe doesn't love a headline infuriates Carl and he just wants to get him to bite. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. I think uh, Carl Frotchie, like I mentioned earlier, he, he loves, like you say, he loves the headline. Um, he loves to say the part, that narcissistic side, as you mentioned, has uh, as, as kind of always been there. And uh, yeah, so anyway, getting to the argument as such, we've kind of broke broke it down into segments. So myself and you are going to go through what we believe to be the best three wins of each man's respective career, uh, when the fight could have happened, uh, but also if the fight had happened when we consider each man to be at their peak, at their very best, which is the true fantasy side of things. Uh, so how much fun did you have looking back over Carl Zaghi's career and deciding on what you consider to be his best three wins, Ewan? It was painstaking, to be honest, because it's... I think there's there's two clear versions of Carl Zaghi. And you can kind of... there's his. How do you define his best win was the problem that I had. Because is it the best win, the, the clearest win's the one where he looks the slickest and the best and they're, you know, most kind of moving around and at his absolute physical peak? Or is it against the biggest name? Because when he went on to beat the, you know, the massive names in his career and have the big nights at the end of his career and become a superstar, he probably wasn't at his best, but... Um, yeah, I've I found that quite quite a difficult prospect, but I've I've gone for the bigger names. I think I think they're the fights everyone wants to hear about. Yeah, most definitely. And I think you know, touching on Calzaghi, I think it was if you like, he was a, a tad unfortunate, almost in the way that you can discuss Vladimir Klitschko's reign as heavyweight champion. That when he was at his very best, there just wasn't the challenges around that he was before and after. So it kind of keeps him in a bit of limbo. And I think that was the case with Joe Calzaghi. You know, he came around just after the. The well, you know, it was kind of an overlap, but when you had the the, the boom in British uh, middleweight, super middleweight era of Michael Watson, uh, Steve Collins, of course, Chris Eubank Senior, and and Nigel Ben, and you know, across the pond in America, we had Roy Jones at his best, we had James Toner, uh, Jeremy McLennan, you know, and, and and other fighters, and I think, and then he came before the the real boom of British boxing again, which was Carl Froch, George Groves, uh, James DeGale. You know, and, and fighters of that ilk, you know, so, you know, two different levels, but he was kind of in the middle. And it, that, that was quite frustrating. And I can imagine that, you know, it, it, it might play in the back of Joe Calzaghi's mind a little that he didn't have that golden era of opponents. Yeah, and he was he was a much avoided fighter at his best. He was not many people because he was wasn't really a name outside of Wales in it's coming up. He was kind of a WBO champion, which the Americans don't value anyway. And he, he kind of, it was part of the, the who needs him club because he's got this title. He's an extremely talented fighter, but actually nobody needs him. They waited until he was, you know, already had 40 fights and, you know, nearly 10 years as an undefeated champion before he ended up taking those big names in America. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and it, it, again, it's a shame, you know, I, I don't think Kazagi will look back with any kind of regret or, 
or anything. So, you know, it's 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 a, it's a by-the-by kind of situation. But at the same time, it would have been brilliant to drop him in the middle of the the early 90s, especially in, in Great Britain. Um, that would have been fantastic. But as it is, um, should we start off with number three and build ourselves up to number one in terms of your top three Joe Kazagi wins? Okay, so I started number three. I've gone for Roy Jones Jr., I know Roy Jones Jr. was a very, very faded version of Roy Jones Jr., but any version of Roy Jones Jr. is still Roy Jones Jr. He's, again, he was one of the best super middleweights, and he's, he will go down as probably the best super middleweight ever. And Joe holds a win over him, and it was a scrappy fight. It was a hard fight, but Joe won it, and he won it clearly. And, again, I know Roy was older and, and passed it, but you have to recognise that the, even a passed-it fighter, you know, a fighter that was that great when at his best, is still a dangerous prospect. At his worst, and um, I think that Joe Joe managed to you know maintain the distance, frustrate Roy, not play his game, fight his own fight, and and come away with a victory. So that one has to go in at number three. At number two, I've gone for Bernard Hopkins, which was another one where it was an older guy, but a very very capable and dangerous guy. Uh, Hopkins was coming off the back of wins over uh, Tava and uh, Ronald Rink. That's <laughs> his name, Ronald R- Winky yeah. Wright. Um, who were, again, brilliant fighters, and Hopkins had just dealt with them. And Calzaghe came in, again, fought his own fight, fought at his own pace, refused to play the games of uh, Hopkins, didn't get involved, and won a clear decision. And for the best night, it's absolutely clear, it's one of the most complete boxing performances that's ever happened on British soil. It's the Jeff Lacey fight in Manchester. He just boxed his ears off. Jeff Lacey was hyped up as a mini Mike Tyson. He came over here and he got an absolute boxing lesson. Calzaghe was slick, fast, mobile, powerful, stinging. He just he didn't let Lacey up. It was like death by a thousand cuts. He just peppered him and peppered him and uh, never let him go. So my pick for the best, Joe Calzaghe, is uh, his performance against Jeff Lacey. Fantastic. You know, it's, it's, it'd be very easy to sit and and be a clear after timer and, and downplay the victory over Jeff Lacey, given you know that Jeff Lacey didn't really reach those heights again after the beating that he took from Joe Calzaghe, I think. You know the the faded version that went on to box and lose many a times after that, uh, kind of doesn't isn't a fair reflection, should I say, of of the beast that he was considered to be when he came over. You know, and even myself as a Joe Kazagi fan, a British boxing fan, you know, I was fearful of Jeff, Jeff Lacey looking back at two thousand and five and and thinking, you know, that Kazagi's done well, he's been a long reigning champion, but you know, his time's up, kind of thing, you know, uh, and such, you know. He, he proved everyone wrong. He proved me wrong. You know, in the, the same year that uh, Ricky Hatton defeated Costa Jr. in Manchester Arena, we also had Joe Calzaghe, uh with an absolute masterclass. Uh, but something that I did want to touch on briefly um, that you mentioned with the Bernard Hopkins fight, and I'm going to uh, make this argument with my Carl Froch head on. Uh, you say with Hopkins that, uh, you know, Joe Calzaghe didn't go into the games of, of Hopkins, you know, the, the wise old Fox uh, that Hopkins was at that point, um, uh, but and he went on to win a, a clear decision um, on the night. It was given a split decision, and you know there was people around the ring that actually had Bernard Hopkins winning that fight. So was it as clear for you? Um, was it much clearer for you than it was for for the judges that give it a split decision? And I think there was Dan Raphael was ringside as well. I think Dan Raphael had Bernard Hopkins winning. So um, what, what's your take on that fight in particular? I want whatever Dan Raphael was drinking <laughs> because that is ridiculous. Um, there's no way he won that fight. Not a single chance. No. Um, Joe, 
again, it was close and it wasn't, and, you know, Joe lost a couple of rounds. He got knocked down early, but the majority of the rounds, Calzaghe was a clearer winner. Um, the Ameri- It was a Golden Boy promotion. Bernard Hopkins was essentially running Golden Boy at that time. He was Richard Schaefer's Golden Boy, you know, over Oscar. He was, you know, he was the next guy. He was their money, their money guy. The judges were picked by Golden Boy. It was, you know, and even they couldn't bring themselves to cheat Joe out of a victory. It was, it was close. It was closer than the Jones Jr. fight and way closer than the Lacey fight. But no, Joe Calzaghe won that fight for me. And I think that, yeah, I don't know what Dan Raphael was watching because I've watched it back this week and I watched it alongside the um, the commentary from uh, Steve Bunce and on the, what what is it called? What went down on PT? Yeah. And um, I, yeah, I watched that this week and I have no doubts in my mind that Calzaghe won a majority of those rounds. Fantastic. So switching over to Carl Froch, I've listed off the three best wins of his career, what I consider to be the three best. And, you know, it, it can be quite easy to overlook just how good of a career Carl Froch had, maybe because it's more recent than Carl Zaghi, you know, that he doesn't get the plaudits it deserves and maybe it'll age better in time, who knows. But as it is, uh, number three, I've got his uh, unanimous decision victory over Gene Pascal uh, when he won his first world title. Uh, ironically, the first world title Carl Froch won was the vacated WBC Super Middleweight title that was vacated by a certain Joe Calzaghe. Uh, there you go. So that was back in 2009. Uh, Carl Froch, Gene Pascal, both undefeated. I think it got British Fight of the Year. Um, great fight. Uh, number two, uh, again, for me, I put this victory in there in terms of the performance, what it meant to each man and what it meant to British boxing. Of course, I'm alluding to the eighth-round knockout of George Groves in Froch versus Groves 2, Wembley Arena. I think there was 80,000 people there. Uh, I'll have to check with Carl Froch just how many was there. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, given the, the controversy uh, from from some angles uh, of, of the first fight, you know, obviously Froch was down heavy in the first and he went on to stop George Groves in the ninth. Uh, I think that the the emphatic way in which he won the rematch, and and which turned out to be the last fight of his career, was was beautiful violence. It was a it was a great win. It was a, a massive platform, a massive stage, and that was, you know, the the key in the door of the next golden era of British boxing, if you like, which were you know still kind of in the remnants of now. Uh, and at number one, uh, a fight again similar to the Lacey performance, which you mentioned, uh, which didn't really aged well and now did my choice here but this is back in 2012 uh, the battering that Lucian Butte took at the hands of Carl Froch uh, such a great performance the aggression, the relentless pressure uh, that Carl Froch put on you know, Lucian Butte, he was so hyped up You know, I'd, I'd say he was on equal footing with the hype that was around Jeff Lacey at the time uh, when he came over to fight Carl Froch in Nottingham I think you know, he dealt with all this kind of pressure that it was past it, he just lost to Andre Ward. And he goes out there and he batters Lucian Butte. And and Butte was never the same. I think it's a good comparison because it is it is that, you know, it that it epitomizes both of their styles, the, the contrast in those two victories of guys that were, you know, supposed to come over here and beat them easy and then didn't. But it shows the difference in how they did it, I think epitomizes the difference in their styles in their prime. Frotch was, you know, a sledgehammer and he came in and he just battered you and that's why into Butte and whereas you know Calzaghe was the technician who you know death by a thousand cuts who was just constant pressure constant 
popping, popping the jab, sticking and moving, cutting an angle on you. It kind of that's the, the two of them at their best. I agree, and I think that it it shows the kind of that chalk and cheese that they of the different styles that they had equally brutal, but very very different in the way that they delivered that brutality. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think it needs to be a, an honourable mention. Uh, Agbu on both men's record, uh, of course, it's one of two mutual opponents, uh, Mikhail Kessler. You know, there was two fights with Carl Froch. Uh, obviously, Carl Froch lost the first and he won the second fight, both really close, really highly competitive fights. And, of course, uh, Joe Calzaghe defeated Mikhail Kessler uh, at I think it was Cardiff Stadium, or Millennium Stadium, as it was known back then. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, if, if we was to do a top four, I think we'd both arguably have Mikhail Kessler at number four for, for each man. Yeah, but, uh, I know, and I know we're arguing, but what I'd say is if you watch those fights, Froch went life and death for Mikel Kessler twice, and Calzaghe barely broke a sweat. It was, it, there were very, very different ways in which they fought that fight. And I think that Calzaghe's boxing ability is proven when you look at that mutual opponent. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to argue. And again, you know, we're meant to be taking sides, but, uh, you know, if, if, if is something's as Obvious as it is, you know, Joe Kazagi's performance against Mikel Kessler, you know, Froch will argue that Kessler went in there injured. You know, there's rumours that he'd uh, really damaged hands. But then again, Joe Kazagi famously boxed the majority of his career with damaged hands. So, you know, it's, it's six to one and a half, a dozen the other. Um, but that, that night in, in Cardiff, you know, I think it, it divided two o'clock in the morning to appease American TV audiences and, you know, the performance from Kazagi was, was immaculate uh, up there with the Jeff Lacey performance in terms of pure boxing skill. Whereas, like you say, uh, Froch went to war with Kessler, but there was no other way Carl Froch was going to win. You know, he was never going to go to war with Kessler. He was never going to box around Kessler. It was just kind of meeting the centre of the ring, you know, the great Dane, the great Brit, and and, and see who walks away. At the end of it, you know, it was, it was nothing more than... than a scrap, you know, you could see that in a pub car park, or you could see it at a sold-out O2 arena in front of sixteen thousand fans. And um, yeah, there was no other way for Carl Frech to get the picture at that. So as much as Joe Kazagi's win looks much better as a boxing enthusiast, Frotch's win for me is equally as good, given that there was no other way he could have done it. Exactly, but Frotch has never he's never outboxed anybody. He's he, you know he walks forward and crushes you. That's 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 his thing. Whereas Joe Joe is the boxer. He is the the matador to Frotch's bull. And I think that I think that when comparing them, you have to remember that excitement isn't boxing skill because Carl Frotch is probably the more exciting fighter. In all honesty, Carl Frotch probably you know the fights with Lucian Boutte, George Groves, obviously they're probably more exciting than a Joe Calzaghe fight, but. For me, I think that Joe Calzaghe, you have to appreciate the kind of the masterclasses that he put on. And one of the one of the ones that I did want to talk about as well was his fight with Chris Eubank. I know Eubank was coming towards the end of his career again. And, you know, we talk about lots of fighters that were kind of coming towards the end of their career for Joe. But um, he he was able to just pepper pepper him and keep him on way. And he dropped him in the first round, actually, with a really heavy, right, uh, really heavy left hand from Southpaw. And uh, you have to kind of, look at the the similarities in style of a, a Eubank and a Frotch. I think that the they're kind of the come forward, uh, I'll just smash you to bits thing, re- are really reminiscent of one another. And uh, I think that that's something that's worth considering. Yeah, most definitely worth considering. I think uh, Frotch's tendency to get involved in the scrap and you know back his, his chin 100% does overshadow his boxing career. You know, he's a, he's a two-time ABA champion as an amateur um, you know, we medalled at you know uh, national tournaments and 
I think he medaled at a world championships. So, you know, he, the boxing skills are there. Maybe they went out the window. Uh, the first time he got tagged in, he, he, he knew that he couldn't really get hurt. Uh, 99.9% of the times, you know, chuck out the first round against George Groves. You know, aside from that, he didn't really get troubled like that. He's been down a couple of times before, but that was the first real time that he thought Carl Frox could get knocked out here. Um, so maybe the fact that he he loved to tear up that much overshadowed his, his boxing ability because, you know, as an amateur, the the wins speak for themselves, the, the accolades speak for themselves. So he was never going to outbox, outbox Joe Calzaghe, but I think his boxing skills deserve respect in their own right. Yeah, it's something that's worth to be considered because if you said, if you showed amateur records of what, what Joe had, Joe didn't have a great deal of amateur experience compared to his boxing, compared to his... Uh, Compared to Carl Froch, like I say, Carl Froch went all over the world and he didn't have a great deal, to so to speak. But, you know, the accolades and said, all right, which one of these boxers was the you know, really experienced amateur? Calzaghe had much more of an amateur style in the pros, whereas Froch had a, a pros, pros style in terms of just going to going after it and trying to get get his opponent and really, really hurt them. So it is, it is an interesting thing to look at um, in terms of, the styles and how those styles might have gelled and whether or not come back onto his uh, his game a little bit and in, in his amateur game and I think that something like some Joe never fought a great, his best wins are aren't against kind of master boxers you know his most emphatic wins are against punches where he was able to walk them onto one and really and really land a big punch you know the Richie Woodall fight comes to mind you know, obviously Woodall was a good amateur but. He, you know, he went looking for the big shot, and he got caught by Joe. And I think that that some of those, uh, some of the similarities in that might be uh, might be interesting if they were to fight prime for prime. Absolutely. And and just before we get on to, you know, the the two fights that we're going to discuss, whether it be when the fight could have happened uh, for real, and then we're going to debate the the fantasy fight of each one at the peak. Uh, but before we get to that, you know, of course, with Carl Froch, he's he's suffered. A couple of defeats, you know, he avenged the loss to Mikel Kessel, which was the first defeat of his career, but he's also lost to Andre Ward, which is a bitter pill for him to swallow. You know, they're, they're not the best of friends and they love to go at each other on social media in the years uh, after that fight. Uh, but that was a conclusive loss, you know, it was it was reasonably close on the cards from what I remember, but in terms of an actual spectacle, you know, it was it was a one-sided victory for, for Andre Ward. Um, so there is a blueprint, if you, if you like, you know, for for Joe Kazagi to follow, you know, if if the fight was to have happened, there was a blueprint there uh, for for Joe Kazagi to follow. Um, but in terms of you know Joe Kazagi, he's got the unblemished record, forty six and zero. Uh, but the one the one fight that I do want to pick out and get your opinion on to kind of balance the books is of course the Robin Reed fight, which gets overlooked. Um, you know, there was no rematch there, and that was a, a very very close fight. Uh, another mutual opponent, although. Frotch be a much faded Robin Reed, you know, which is admitted by both parties, Robin Reed and Carl Frotch, both admit that the Robin Reed that stepped in the ring with Carl Frotch was much past his best. But the Robin Reed that fought Joe Calzaghe gave him all he could take and more. Um, and for some people, you know, that was a, a, a slightly disputed victory for Joe Calzaghe. It was. It's a very, very close fight. And like you say, it's, you, it's barely comparable in terms of mutual opponents, in, not in the same way that Kessler is Absolutely. comparable because they fought at such different times. But yeah, Robin Reed gave him hell. But Robin, that was Robin Reed's best night in the ring. He was absolutely his prime. And Joe was you know, caught a little bit by surprise, I think, by, um, by uh, Robin Reed. And it's, it's one of those where he, 
he kind of it, he fought well and he fought with his heart on his sleeve. But Reed had a, a great style and came came with everything that night. But you know, it was it was early on in his in his uh, middleweight title, super middleweight title reign, and it was a close fight. I personally did still have Calzaghe winning when I've watched it back. But again, it was a very, very close fight and I can see why. I think there's a lot more of an argument to say that Robin Reed beat Joe Calzaghe than there is to say Bernard Hopkins beat him. Uh, so that's just my personal opinion. But yeah, it, it, is a, it is a fight and it shows that Joe wasn't invincible despite his, you know, his amazing record. Absolutely. So if we go back to 2008, uh, Joe Calzaghe, uh, undefeated, super middleweight champion. He just defeated Mikhail Kessler in 2007. Uh, a huge night at Cardiff, you know, the, the homecoming fight, the the huge crowd, you know, real, real big-time boxing back in Wales. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Carl Froch is yet to challenge for a world title, but he builds himself into a mandatory position to challenge. Uh, I think there's a six-year age gap. Uh, and I think this is the only point in which they would ever have fought as professionals, uh, was when he got that manager position for the WBC title. And Joe Calzaghe, I get the choice. Do I stay and take on a domestic challenger or do I go over to America and chase the big names and get my name up in lights on Las Vegas Strip and, and, and go for those big fights? Um, which, of course, he went on to do. Yeah, and people, you know, Carl Froch is one to always say, "Oh, Joe ducked me. He didn't want to. Didn't want to fight me." But I'll, I'll, po- I'll pose the question to you: What would you have done? Do you want to fight a young, hungry contender, or do you want to go over and f- into America and fight uh, two of the biggest names of the last twenty years of boxing for absolutely obscene money, and then dip out into the sun- sunset? I don't know. I think if you, I was offered Bernard Hopkins in America or Carl Froch at home, I think I'd take Hopkins ten times out of ten. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and again, we have to try and put our mindset in uh, in 2008, you know, and, and not looking back because I think it, in 2008, Carl Froch wasn't the name that he went on to become. Um, he wasn't a draw in any stretch of the imagination. You know, there was never going to be the financial reward of fighting Carl Froch. There was never going to be the, the applause, the acclaim of defeating Carl Froch for Joe Kazig at that time. You know, if he went over and he, he went on to box Bernard Hopkins and, and Roy Jones, you know, it took another four or five years for for Carl Froch to get enough credible wins to be worthy of a challenge of Joe Calzaghe for the risk reward factor. Uh, so again, it's easy to look back and think, "Oh, of course he should have fought him," but that wasn't the same Carl Froch, you know. And the one thing that I will say is that Carl Froch gave the opportunity to George Groves when Joe Calzaghe didn't really give Carl Froch the opportunity. So in in that respect, I could kind of see where Carl Proch is coming from with the argument that, you know, Joe Calzaghe ducked him, which of course he didn't. But for me, I, I'm going to switch allegiances slightly and say that Joe Calzaghe was right for not fighting him back then for the reasons that he gave, because it's not a Carl Froch of 2013, 2014. It wasn't the draw. It wasn't the fight that we're debating now, if you like. It was an unheralded domestic challenger. Yeah, but again, at the end of Carl Froch's career, he was looking for a fight, a big fight in America, and there was no one to fight. You know, he came and he said, I'll have Chavez Jr. or Sergio Martinez, but they were kind of disappearing, and Martinez was semi-retired. You know, Chavez Jr.'s turned out to be nothing. And so Carl Froch was in a a bit of a position where he wanted to go to America, and he was stuck. And then, so he ended up having to fight his mandatory in Groves, and we all know how it turned out. But, you know, Froch tried to do what Calzaghe did, but there was no big names in America. Calzaghe went over and found Hopkins and Jones Jr. So why not? But Froch tried to do exactly the same thing 
but just couldn't. So ended up having with Groves what Calzaghe and Froch probably would have had, you know, say a few years earlier in that 2008 yeah, fight. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's quite ironic also to, to further fan the flames of your argument. You know, again, I'm trying to stick to Carl Froch, but I'll call things down the <laughs> middle. But Carl Froch also vacated the IBF title instead of fighting his IBF challenger in James DeGale. So he can't, you know, uh, slap Calzaghe with a ducking tag and then also say that he didn't want to fight his mandatory uh, domestic challenger in James DeGale for the IBF title when he was looking for that Sergio Martinez-Chavez um, Jr. fight. He'd done the exact same thing, like you said, and he couldn't find that fight. Um, but I'm going to jump back over into Froch, <laughs> into the Froch camp um, and, and not try and play both sides of the fence. Uh, in 2008, uh, would the younger, hungrier bit between his teeth, Carl Froch, have defeated Joe Calzaghe when Joe Calzaghe was looking to cash out? Uh, absolutely not. I don't think there's any version of Carl Froch that beats any version of Joe Calzaghe, and I'm sure that's where you're going on to this. But even the 2008 version of Joe Calzaghe, he was struggling, you know, like you mentioned, his hand problems. I just Again, the, I think the Matador beats the bull. I think that Joe just has the number of big punches. And Froch, for all his faults, was just a bit... For all his merits, he was just a big puncher. And he, he held his hands too low. And especially in 2008, young and hungry, he was less experienced. Jermaine Taylor put a clinic on him for 11 rounds. And I know we smashed him to bits in the last round, and that's all we remember. But actually, Jean-Pascal gave him a hell of a fight, and that was that nearly went over. Jermaine Taylor battered him from pillar to post for 11 rounds. Uh, Jermaine Taylor or John Pascal better than a 2008 version of Joe Calzaghe? No, they're not. Joe Calzaghe was so experienced, so he'd honed his craft to a point where he knew exactly how he was going to fight. And it wasn't necessarily the prettiest. It wasn't necessarily the, the most interesting style to watch, but he did a job and he would have done the same job. He would have been a or prime for prime. He does exactly the same thing. He, he boxes to orders, keeps him off, hits him in the chin, a big exposed chin. I don't think he gets him out of there, but I can't see any eventuality where Carl Froch can win. Okay, so uh, my side of the argument, I think um, to, to balance the books in 2008, I agree, hands up, Joe Calzaghe defeats Carl Froch in 2008. Um, way more experience, way more proven. Uh, Froch had not gone on to have the wars um, and the, the, the high-profile fights that he would go on to have. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's not going to be much of an argument for me there if, if, if Joe Calzaghe had defended his WBC uh, super middleweight title against mandatory challenger Carl Froch in 2008-2009, then uh, it, it'd be a clear unanimous decision victory for Joe Calzaghe. But the other side of the argument um, that I want to look at, which is peak versus peak, prime for prime, you know, it's a... a an often overused term in boxing. We love to have a fantasy debate. Uh, but for me, I've got to make an argument for Carl Froch to win. Um, and for me, Joe Kazagi simply doesn't have the punching power to deter a, a hungry Carl Froch. The Carl Froch that stepped in the ring in 2012 with Lucien Butte is, is nigh on unstoppable, you know. And, and, and I think the, the, the will to win... Uh, the, the the pressure, the aggressive aggression, um, could have overwhelmed Joe Calzaga. Uh, I think the early rounds would have went to Joe Calzaga. I think if he, if he if he'd slowed, um, Carl Froch would have capitalised. I think that Calzaga didn't. He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have hurt 
Carl Froch, you know, Carl Froch would have got out of that ring and, you know, he would have went out for a meal with his wife and and people would have just thought that he stepped out of the gym. He wouldn't have thought that he'd just been in a, a huge world title fight. I think at some point in the fight, Carl Froch would land on Joe Calzaghe because let's not forget, you know, he, he was down against Hopkins, he was down against Roy Jones, he was down against lesser punchers uh, previously as well, uh, lesser punchers than Carl Froch. So if, if Carl Froch had tagged him, he would have stayed tagged. Uh, and Carl Froch, uh, if, if I'm making this argument from his point of view, for me, Carl Froch would have stopped Joe Calzaga late. I think he, he'd get to him. Uh, he'd be behind on the scorecards. Of course he would, because Joe Calzaga is a much more accomplished boxer. But Carl Froch would know that that, that he'd, he'd expect to be behind. But he'd also know that his, his engine, his will to win, his pressure, um, he wouldn't have respected Calzaga's power. Uh, with that granite chin, of course. And uh, yeah, he would have watched him down uh, late rounds. It's a compelling argument, and I like how confident you are. But again, I, I can't disagree with more further. I, I just think that, I think that the, the man that beat Jeff Lacey was so good. He was just, his boxing ability and his punch radar. Okay, so Jeff Lacey was a monster puncher. I think he had all knockouts up to that point. And, you know, power's brilliant, but you have to find the chin to land it. And Joe Calzaghe was a ghost. He, he couldn't be found. Jeff Lacey was throwing absolute bombs at him. And he just couldn't touch the sides. It was the manoeuvrability. You know, McGregor, what does he say? Power beat, uh, time, speed beats power and time beats oh, speed or something. Yeah. But it's exactly that thing. And Calzaghe was asked about this fight in an interview and he just said speed kills. And it's exactly that. He's too fast. He was too fast and too elusive for Carl Froch. You know, Carl Froch, George Groves is not an elusive fighter. He stands in front of you. And Carl Froch found it hard to hit him. What on earth is he going to do with a live game, move, maneuverable Joe Calzaghe? I just don't think he hits him. I, c- I can't see an eventuality where he can land enough punches because Calzaghe was so quick, so fast and so elusive in, at his best. And he would have just been, again, I don't think Calzaghe has the power to stop him, but... He could sting you. And if you didn't respect his power, he'd put you over. Chris Eubank Sr. was never stopped in his career. He retired once against Carl Thompson, actually, but he was never knocked out. And he, you know, he came with this thing of, you know, your power won't hold me off. But actually, it doesn't matter if your power doesn't hold you off. If you can hit, if you can hit him in the chin with five square shots and then be gone before you can throw a counter. And that's what Joe Calzaghe could do to you at his best. And that's what he would have done to Carl Froch. It would have just been pop, 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 pop and out. And then Carl Froch would have been like, getting more and more frustrated, more and more emotional, trying harder to knock him out. And Joe would have just started pulling the tricks he pulled against Hopkins, you know, sticking his nose out, doing a dance, hitting you with a jab and running away. And I think Froch would have just got lost his head, got angry and just, you know, been on the wrong side of a, uh, of a lopsided decision. If Andre Ward can outbox you, Joe Calzaghe can outbox you twice over. You know, it's a, again, it's a compelling argument. It's, it's difficult to disagree because, again, I am a Calzaghe fan. So when I look at it from a Joe Calzaghe point of view, I kind of found myself agreeing with you. But at the same time, a, a Pete Carl Froch is better than anything that Joe Calzaghe defeated in his career. That, that, I don't think that's up for debate. If, if he beat a, a Pete Carl Froch, I think that would be the best win of his career. You know, the, the, the version of Roy Jones that he defeated, the version of Bernard Hopkins that he defeated... Um, I think I don't think there's anybody on the resume of Joe Calzaghe that Carl Froch wouldn't have defeated at the point of which uh, that Carl Froch wouldn't have defeated at the point of which Calzaghe got those victories. You know, beat Eubank. You know, I love Chris Eubank, great fighter, but Carl Froch would have beat that version of Chris Eubank that Joe Calzaghe beat, and and so on and so forth throughout uh, 
Calzaghi's career. So I think that, you know, if if we say that, you know, you take confidence from the performance against Jeff Lacer, you know, um, I don't think Carl Foch would have been hurt the way Jeff Lacey was hurt. I don't think that, um, I don't think that, you know, Joe Calzaghi would have tried making fun of, of Carl Froch or been in a position to make fun of Carl Froch the way he was in a position to to wind up Bernard Hopkins. You know, if we're talking peak versus peak, I think it would have been relentless. I think it would have been gutsy. Um, and I, I do agree that, you know, the, the, slightly that the, the, the argument that Carl Froch loses his head, but I think he would have backed the same way he did against Groves, um, the same way he did against Jermaine Taylor. He would have pulled it out the fire knowing that he's not going to win by outboxing. And it would have been... Pressure, pressure. Uh, don't you know he wouldn't have had his heart broken the way Lacey did, um, and he he would have got to him again. You know I've got to, I've got to argue this point from Carl Froch's, uh perspective. He wouldn't have had his heart broken. Carl Froch would not have been deterred by anything that Joe Kazek could pose. You know the the tricks, the the like you say the the combinations and spinning off. In Carl's in in, in Carl Froch's eyes, he would have slowed at some point. And that's the that's the the argument I'm going to take that he would have the pressure would have got too much for for Carl Zager. his legs might have slowed he might have had a half a round off and bam that's where Carl Froch steps in you know and and lands and and he would have hit Carl Zager harder than he's been hit before in his career. There's certainly a potential for that. That that's, that is an eventuality. If, if they fought a hundred times, I, I I think Carl Froch probably catch him maybe ten. But again, I think you have to look at the Andre Ward fight. And that's that's a year before his peak against Lucian Butte, right? But he he was he, he never lost heart in that fight. He was in it till the end. He was fighting, but he was never going to win that fight. He never came close to winning that fight. And it would have been exactly the same thing against Calzaghi. Calzaghi was a master, master boxer. He was a better boxer than Andre Ward. And Bernard Hopkins, that who Calzaghi beat at that time, was a better boxer than Andre Ward. Um, in the business, uh, in Tarver and Wright. And I think you have to like look deeper into the record of, you know, Roy Jones Jr. But peak, but they were still fantastic, fantastic fighters because they're two of the all-time greats and Calzaghi handily beat them, both of them. So I think that the boxer in Calzaghi would have given Froch real trouble. Yeah, most definitely. Again, it, it's difficult to argue that, that you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be deluded. I'm not going to be blinded into just... Believing Carl Froch would win. This is a debate, and to debate, you've got to look at both sides. Um, but to kind of close off, um, we're, we're going to get a one-word answer from each of us. Um, so let's start with when the fight could have happened. Two thousand eight. I know what your answer is going to be, but let's get it anyway. Two thousand eight. Carl Froch, Joe Calzaghe versus Carl Froch for the WBC Super Middleweight Title. The result is Joe Calzaghe wins a unanimous decision for me. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Joe Calzaghe boxes the ears off him. Unanimous decision all day. And peak versus peak, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm, I'm expecting a ton of shit on social media, you know. But my, my prediction for peak versus peak is that a prime Carl Froch would stop Calzaghe. Uh, it's almost like great on me to say, but that's my argument. You know, I've researched it, I've looked into it, and I've come up with that a prime Carl Froch stops a prime Joe Calzaghe between rounds nine and 12. There you go. 
It's a very bold prediction, but for me, a prime a prime Joe Calzaghe doesn't lose a single round against Carl Froch. He, he leaves him for dead. He boxes his ears off. Fantastic. Unanimous decision, Calzaghe. You know, there's, there's, there's not going to be too many people that will disagree with you there. Um, I think the general consensus is that, that Calzaghe is, you know, an all-round better boxer, an all-round better uh, boxer than, than Carl Froch. He has, you know... The undefeated ledger. Um, he, he kind of keeps himself away from the limelight. So in time, you know the kind of uh, adulation that that he gets from British boxing fans just grows and grows and grows. You know, whereas Carl Froch, he loves, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, he loves a bit of controversy, and he can kind of leave a bit of taste in the mouth of British boxing fans. And I, I do think it eats away at Carl Froch that he doesn't get the, he doesn't command the same level of respect, um, adulation and fanfare that Joe Calzaghe does. You know, when we talk about all-time great British boxers, I think in Carl Froch's mind, he'll always list himself ahead of Joe Calzaghe. Um, and I think a lot of that influences people's arguments and people's opinions. And I think it prejudices them against Froch and what he actually achieved, because what he actually achieved should is worthy of note. It is worthy of record. He is a top five super middleweight of all time. It's just, is he better than Calzaghe? Probably not. And he doesn't endear people to him saying that he is, when actually there is an argument that he's an all-time great and he should be remembered for what he's done for British boxing. I, I, I wouldn't want to slag off Carl Froch, even though I've just spent however long doing so. I think that actually he, he should be remembered as being up there with, in the, li- with the likes of Calzaghe, maybe not above him, but in with him at the top. Yeah, fantastic. And as always, you and during uh, the lockdown period, you know, we're going to stick to our guns um, and we provide our followers with a, a throwback fight to go and watch. And, you know, for, for my modern classic to go back and watch, I can't steer away from, uh, I'm going to watch it myself as well. Again, um, Lennox Lewis versus Vitaly Klitschko, uh, that fight in 2003. If if there's any boxing fan somehow that hasn't seen it, go back and watch six rounds of, of pure violence. Um, we've already touched on the finish and the outcome and, and everything else, but just go back and watch that and you won't be disappointed. Uh, the heavyweight title, the, the heavyweight championship of the world on the line, um, Vitaly Klitschko looking for that breakout moment, Lennox Lewis looking to go out on a high, and it's just pure violence. There's not much boxing skill on show, but there's a lot of heart, uh, a lot of grit, a lot of determination and huge, huge wills to win. It's a great shout. And uh, I'm going to go for one which has an anniversary uh, this week as well, which was two days ago. It was the anniversary of the brawl in Montreal. Roberto Duran versus Sugar Ray Leonard. The first the fight that kicked off the Four Kings series of fights. Um, no, it didn't, actually. The Sugar Ray Leonard Tommy Hearns was before it, I think, actually. Sorry. But it was one of the first, the defining nights, as the greatest lightweight of all time, Roberto Duran stepped up to welterweight to take on the flashy young champion, and it was an absolutely fantastic, fantastic fight. Um, I won't tell you what happens in case you're one of the, you know, the person that's lived under a rock and hasn't actually seen it. <laughs> go back and watch it. Go back and watch Sugar Ray Leonard versus Roberto Duran one. You won't be disappointed. It's two of the best operators in the history of boxing working at the highest of levels. Absolutely. And, and something that, you know, briefly what I touch on, we've seen it on social media this morning. Um, it, it might be the basis... Uh, for one of these arguments in the future, but I've seen that you touch on it yourself. Um, speaking of Roberto Duran, you know, it was his birthday this week, so we wish him the very best. But there was the argument of a £135 fantasy fight with Lomachenko. Uh, in, in, in 20 seconds, you and break down how that fight goes for him. Roberto Duran uh, would destroy him. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and I love Lomachenko like everybody else, but Lomachenko is a, uh, is a super featherweight or a featherweight. 
Roberto Duran knocked out Davy Moore at 154 pounds. He knocked down Iran Barkley at 160 pounds. He fought as high as light heavyweight in his career. Roberto Duran is a far more vicious puncher and a far more quality operator. He was the best lightweight of all time. And he had punching power way above his station. And I think he would have caught Lomachenko with that power. And on that note, as always, a fantastic breakdown. Yun, it's been an absolute pleasure recording today's podcast with you. Uh, take care. You know, all our listeners, go and check us out at Sembucks across social media. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. But for now, Ewan, take care. Thanks, Luke.